It's a joy to be with you and to uh, worship the Lord Jesus Christ together. If you don't know me, my name is Dan. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Cornerstone Bible Church. Our lead pastor, James Shin, is, uh, as we talked about, ministering at another church this morning. And so I'll be uh, pinch hitting this morning and uh, sharing the Word of God with you. And uh, since the elders are away, I guess this is kind of my opportunity to say what's on my heart and tell you guys what I really think. So uh, you don't have to tell them I said this, but I did want to take this opportunity to say a word of appreciation for our elders. And the best way I think I could sum up their ministry is in thinking about my own children and realizing that if I do my job right as a parent, my children will never know all the dangers and all the threats to their lives that they've been protected from. If I do my job right, they'll never see all the things that I think about. They'll never see all the dangers and threats that could have come into their lives and ruined their lives. But if I do my job right, they'll just grow up happy and healthy and just enjoy life. And I think if I were to sum up the ministry of our elders, Elder James and Elder Bob, I think it would be in that statement that behind the scenes they care for you, they love you, they love the church, and there are a multitude of threats and dangers that they protect this church from, that if they're doing their job right, you just don't even realize they're there. And I think that's a testimony to their ministry, is that most of us, if we come to Cornerstone Bible Church, we, we're happy, we, we're healthy, we're, we're growing in the Lord, and we don't even recognize all the things that could have come into this church and destroyed this church from within, and that's because they've engaged in such uh, diligent labor over us to watch over us. And so we are not here to exalt any man. We don't believe that men are special, but we do believe that the work is special. And so I did want to take this opportunity since they're not here to embarrass them, but just to appreciate uh, the elders of this church and to encourage you that you glorify God when you appreciate your elders and when you appreciate the work that they do for you. And I especially wanted to say a word of appreciation for the ministry that goes on in this pulpit week after week. Uh, Our lead pastor, James does uh, such an excellent job over so many years in preaching the word faithfully week after week. And it's just a privilege to just, uh, once again, fill in this morning for him. And want to encourage you to come alongside the elders as well and to appreciate them for that ministry. So without further ado, I want to ask you this morning, if you have your Bibles, to open them to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is Matthew 20. Verses 29 to 34, and the title of this morning's message is Christ, our example of humility. Christ, our example of humility. Matthew 20, verses 29 to 34. Let's read it together. And as they were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
And the multitude sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. And from the simple reading of this passage, we understand that this is a very simple and straightforward passage. It is a story of Jesus healing two blind men. Jesus is exiting Jericho. He is about to enter into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. It is in Jerusalem that he's going to be tried by unjust men. It is in Jerusalem that he's going to give his life on the cross as a ransom for many. It is in Jerusalem that he's going to rise on the third day from the grave. So we are here entering into the final week of Christ's life and ministry here on earth. For three years he's been preaching. For three years he's been teaching. For three years he's been healing, performing many miracles. This is now entering into the final week of his life and ministry. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he encounters two blind men who cry out to him, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The multitude following Jesus tells them to be quiet. They keep going and they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stops and heals them. Now that, if you look at that story, is a very simple story. There's nothing complicated about it. There's no real, seems to be interpretive issues. It's a simple story of Jesus healing to blind men. The question that I had when I studied this passage is the simple question, why? Why does Matthew include this account of Christ healing two blind men? And why does he see fit to put it at this particular juncture in his gospel record? Why is this here? What does this have to teach us? To help you understand why I asked that question, keep your finger in Matthew 20 and turn back to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We'll return to Matthew 20 in just a minute. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, we have this account. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And after he had come into the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Be it done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See here, let no one know about this. But they went out and spread the news about him in all the land. In Matthew chapter 9, we have a similar, not the same, account of Jesus healing two blind men. This is a separate account with two separate blind men, occurring at a separate part in Matthew's gospel. But it is similar in nature. There are two blind men who come to Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy on us, and Jesus heals them. The context of Matthew 9 is Matthew is presenting Christ's miracles as an authentication of his identity as the Messiah. And he lists all these various miracles, and this is one of them, Jesus healing two blind men. We're not surprised to find that 
There are two sets of two blind men in Jesus' life. Blindness was a very common disease in that day and era. Blind men were usually beggars of society. They usually partnered together for companionship and for support. And so we're not surprised to find that there's one set of two blind men in Matthew chapter 9 and another set of two blind men in Matthew chapter 20. Now, the simple question I had was this. Why does Matthew record the miracle of Jesus healing two blind men in Matthew chapter 20 when he already included a similar miracle in Matthew chapter 9? In other words, let me say it very simply. What does the miracle in Matthew chapter 20 teach us that the miracle in Matthew chapter 9 doesn't? Do you understand the flow of my question? Matthew has already, through the record of Jesus healing two blind men in Matthew chapter 9, established the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has fulfilled the Old Testament scripture, that he has authenticated his identity as the coming one, the promised one of Israel, that he has demonstrated the fact that he is the Son of God. Therefore, the miracle in Matthew chapter 20 must teach us something different than what Matthew has already established in Matthew chapter 9. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 20 and let me just give you some perspective on this question. I believe that there are no reruns in the gospel record. Do you understand what I mean by that? I don't believe that the gospel writers ever include an account, then include a second similar account just for the sake of us watching it over again. I mean, it's so good the first time, let's just watch it again. I don't believe that the gospel records ever give us reruns. Instead, every account is a, you might say, a new episode. Every account has something new to teach us. Every account has something fresh to say. Every account has some new insight on Christ's life and character, some fresh perspective as to the beauty and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. For example... In Matthew chapter 14, you have the feeding of the 5,000. And in Matthew chapter 15, you have the feeding of the 4,000. Now, it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, that's a rerun, right? I mean, we can kind of watch the second account just like we would the first account, like a rerun. I mean, we're paying half attention. We're kind of saying, well, this is great, but I've seen it before. But the truth is that this is not a rerun. The feeding of the 5,000 occurs in the Jewish region near Nazareth. The feeding of the 4,000 occurs in the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon. Therefore, the feeding of the 5,000 is meant to demonstrate Jesus is the Messiah to the Jewish people, while the feeding of the 4,000 is meant to demonstrate that Jesus will be the Messiah who has a ministry also to the Gentile world. It's not a rerun. It's a fresh episode. Now, what does that have to do with our passage? It's easy for us to come to Matthew chapter 20 and to say this is a rerun. 
We've seen this before back in Matthew chapter 9. And this is meant simply to teach us that Jesus is the Messiah. But to do that would be to miss the whole point of why Matthew includes this passage. So back to my original question. What does the two blind men in Matthew chapter 20 have to teach us that the two blind men in Matthew chapter 9 does not? By the way, I'll just insert this here. The gospel writers had so much material on the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ that there's no way that they would give us a rerun. John said in John 21:25 that there are also many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. They had so many things that they could have written about Jesus's life that there's no way that they would waste time just repeating material. They carefully selected certain accounts from Christ's life and ministry in order to demonstrate a certain purpose. And we find this careful and orderly arrangement of Christ's life and miracles in the gospel record. So as we come to Matthew chapter 20, a legitimate question we ask is why? Why is this miracle here? Now for the answer to that question, I'm going to do what I usually do when I want to resolve an interpretive issue. And that is to carefully examine the context I believe that context is king when it comes to biblical interpretation. If you were to ask me what are the first three rules of interpreting a passage, I would say to you, number one is context, number two is context, and number three is context. Context is the environment in which a given unit of thought exists. And context is determinative. In most cases, in understanding a passage. If I give you an example, the simple words come here could mean a variety of different things depending on the context. If I'm speaking it to my wife and I have a box of chocolates with me, it could mean come here, darling. I have bought a box of chocolates for you. If it was uh, the context was I'm standing next to a broken window with a baseball hole through it and there are two guilty looking kids on the other side of the room with a bat and I say come here then it means entirely different. The same two words, but the meaning entirely changes depending on the context. So anytime we go to a biblical passage, we want to ask, what is the context to determine the meaning of the text? What is the context of Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34? Well, let's just examine the near context in verses 25 to 28. Jesus called them, that is the disciples, to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The immediate context of our passage is simply Jesus teaching on humility. Jesus is teaching on humility. The disciples James and John were engaging in some kind of power play. They were trying to get the highest 
positions in the kingdom. The other disciples were getting all upset at them about this because obviously in their hearts there was pride and they wanted the higher positions in the kingdom. And Jesus, in response to the disciples, rebukes their pride and he teaches them on humility. Verse 27, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. I believe then the flow of thought is simply this. In verses 25 to 28, we have Christ's teaching on humility. And in verses 29 to 34, we have Christ's example of humility. In verses 25 to 28, we see Jesus teaching his disciples that if they are to be great in the kingdom, they must cultivate a sweet, lowly spirit of servanthood. And in verses 29 to 34, we see Jesus modeling that sweet and lowly spirit in his ministry to others. So in verses 25 to 28, we have principles. In verses 29 to 34, we have practice. In verses 25 to 28, we have exhortation. And in verses 29 to 34, we have example. Matthew's purpose then in including this account is to demonstrate that Jesus walked the talk. That Jesus lived out what he taught. That Jesus did not just teach us about a sweet spirit of humility, but that he lived it out in his daily life. In the words of the great Bible commentator Leon Morris, Jesus has been teaching his followers the importance of lowly service, and he now gives an example of it. Now, do you see how this passage is not a rerun of Matthew chapter 9? In Matthew chapter 9, Matthew was concerned about establishing the credentials of the Messiah through listing his miraculous works. In Matthew chapter 20, Matthew has already established Christ's credentials as the Messiah, and now he is teaching us of Christ's example of humility. Matthew's concern is to show us that as Jesus went to the cross, he walked the path of lowly service, and he not only taught about humility, he lived it. Now, what then does this passage teach us about Christ-like humility? I want us, as we look at this passage, to see three features of Christ-like humility that we may both worship our Lord Jesus Christ and that we may grow more humble ourselves. And I think it just goes without saying that pride is one of the greatest problems in the church today and that each of us, no matter how long we've been following Christ, need to grow in Christ-like humility. Pride comes in so many shapes and sizes. There's so many dimensions to pride, as I even reflected on my own Christian life and thought about how many times I've sought to put pride to death and almost like that little uh, game at Chuck E. Cheese where the little monsters keep popping up and when you hit one, another one pops up. I, I think that, man, I just killed pride and I just humbled myself and then another aspect of pride pops up. And there's a continual battle against pride and a continual pursuit of Christ-like humility. 
And pride comes in so many different shapes and sizes. There's male pride and there's female pride. There's youthful pride and there's elderly pride. There's people who are prideful that they're educated. There's people who's prideful that they're not educated. There's musical pride and there's athletic pride. So many different shapes and sizes of pride. And for us, who by the grace of God are seeking to put pride to death, And to cultivate a heart of humility, this passage is immensely useful and helpful to us. Because it models for us what Christ-like humility really looks like. Let's look at three features of Christ-like humility. First of all, humility sees the small among the great. Humility sees the small among the great. Verse 29, and as they were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. I believe here that the contrast is as clear as it is startling. Here Jesus is in the middle of a big crowd. Matthew says it was a great multitude. You can picture the crowd, many people crowding around Jesus Christ. Here Jesus is going to a big city, Jerusalem, the capital of the Jews. He's going to meet and talk with big, important people such as Pharisees and religious leaders and governors, political leaders. Here Jesus is on his way to accomplish big things, nothing less than the salvation of the elect, the culmination of all redemptive history. And Jesus is a week away. The setting is big crowds, a big city, big plans, big goals, big people. And here you have two small people. How small? They were blind men. In Jewish society, these would have been the lowest of the low. How small? They were not just blind men. They were blind beggars. If I could put it this way, in this society, these would have been the nobodies, the classless, easily ignored. No wonder the multitude looked at these two blind men and said, waste of time. Verse 31, the multitude sternly told them to be quiet. Can't you see that Jesus is a big person? That he's surrounded by a big crowd? That he's heading to a big city? That he has big important things to do? He doesn't have time for little people like you. You're nobodies. You're beggars. Leave him alone. I think if the average person were there, we would have joined in and just saying, you know, guys, I mean, let's be honest. Jesus is an important person. There's all these people. Look at all these people. They all want his attention. You really want his attention? Come on. Give him a break. Leave him alone. Jesus can't be bothered with small people like you. But they didn't understand the nature of Christ-like humility. See, Christ-like humility sees the small among the great. 
If I could just qualify that, Christ-like humility does not see big people and small people. Christ-like humility simply sees people. And all people are small in the sight of God, and we are all small people worshiping a big Savior. There's anyone who would have been excused in ignoring these two blind men, saying, can't you see, I'm on my way to Passion Week. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I can't be bothered. I'm on a schedule. It would have been Jesus. But that wasn't his heart. One of the most startling phrases in this passage is verse 32. And Jesus stopped. He stopped. I picture it. The crowd's following him. When he stops, they all like bunch up against him and they're stopping too. With all these big and important things going on, Jesus hit the pause button. And he said, these two blind men may be small and insignificant to the world, but they're important to me. Humility sees the small among the great. Can I ask you this morning to evaluate your heart? Are you humble? Are you humble? And what I mean by that is, do you treat people differently based on their wealth, on their education, on their economic status, or on their influence? Do you see big people and small people in your heart is to spend your time with the big people? Because those are the people that are important and those are the people that will help you get where you need to go. Or are you like Jesus? And if you are made in the image of God, I respect you because we're all the same. There's no little people, no big people. There's just small people. Worshipping a big God. Do you only like to talk to and relate to people of influence? Do you hang around the movers and the shakers? Is it your goal and your aim to achieve some higher class in society? Even in the church, do you prefer fellowship with people of a certain class, educational status, financial means, or social status, Whereas your heart is just to fellowship with all believers equally because we're all equal before the cross of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what your class is, what your race is, what your education is, what your age is, what your wealth is. What matters is you know Jesus. And if I know Jesus and you know Jesus, then we have a relationship. Are you humble? When I was um, in junior high, some of you heard this story, but when I was in junior high, I was the second least popular kid in school. You might ask the question, Dan, how do you know you were the second least popular kid in school? Well, it's because I knew the least popular kid in school, and he was my best friend. (laughs) So I can laugh about it now. Junior high was tough. And when I got into high school, 
I joined cross country. I joined drama. I was a thespian. I formed a rock band. And although I, I don't think I ever made it to the upper echelons of, you know, the football lettermen and the ASB presidents, but I achieved some, a little bit of status. I climbed up a little bit into the next rung in the social status, and I even did cool things like wear tie-dye T-shirts and. <laughs> Some of you don't think that's cool. I, th- I thought that was cool. <laughs> the point is that through my education, I knew what it meant to be on the bottom of the social, I guess, the school class. And I knew what it meant not to be at the top, but somewhere maybe in the lower middle. I knew what it meant to climb a little bit. And we all understand that, that at school or in work, we have these classes. We have this these ladders that mentally people rank other people. And a lot of people, their goal is to ascend this ladder to try to attain some coolness or some admiration to get up that ladder to place of respect. And I'm just here to send a clear message that in the church there's no such ladder. There are no classes. There are no rankings. In the church, we're all equal. We're all nobodies. And if you're trying to attain some kind of ranking in the church, if you're trying to climb some kind of social ladder here in the body of Christ, you're sadly mistaken because none exists. Our heart is, if you love Christ, we love you. That's all there is to it. Rank, age, wealth, education. We're all nothing before the cross of Jesus Christ. Before the cross of Christ, we're all just sinners saved by grace, and that's it. And on the basis of that, we have a relationship. Humility, first of all, sees the small among the great. Let's look at a second feature of Christ-like humility. Humility sees the individual among the crowd. Humility sees the individual among the crowd. Verse 29, they were going out from Jericho. A great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The contrast in this passage is not just small people in the midst of big things. It is individuals in the midst of a big crowd. Picture it now. The great multitude crowding Jesus. A great group, a great size. And you have these individuals. And Jesus hears the individual among the crowd. That's humility. That's humility. I believe that there is something prideful about only wanting to minister to the crowds. There's something prideful about only wanting to minister to big groups, to the multitudes. I can honestly share with you that there is somewhat of an ego boost about ministry to the crowds or 
standing in front of large groups. Where Christ-like humility sees individuals. Individuals. Turn back possibly one page to Matthew chapter 18. We see Christ's heart for the individual. Matthew 18 verse 6. Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned. Jesus says, I'm not just concerned about the group. I'm just not concerned about the crowd. I'm concerned about the individual believer. And he calls this individual believer by this tender term, little one. You mess with one of my little ones. You mess with even one individual believer in me. It's better that you be drowned. Because I love that one. I care for that one. That's my sheep. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Don't look down on even an one single individual Christian. That is my little one. I love that one. In verse 12, Jesus said, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Jesus is saying here, yes, I care for the multitude, and yes, I care for the crowd, and yes, I care for the group. But I also have a special concern for the individual, for the one. I love every individual. Each individual believer is precious to me. And when Jesus sees Cornerstone Bible Church, I mean, some of us with the growth of our church might feel like when Jesus sees this church, he just sees us as a group and we're just a nameless face. And the truth is that Jesus sees each and individual one of you and knows your pains and your struggles and your hurts just as much as he knows the concerns of the group as a whole. Humility has a concern for the individual. If anyone had the excuse... To say, hey, don't you see how many people are here, guys? I mean, I'd love to help, but I got this great multitude to take care of. Sorry, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Jesus could have said that, but he didn't. He stopped everything and he ministered to these individuals. For those men who are aspiring to spiritual leadership, I would say this. Ministry is not about organizing things, exerting influences, accomplishing great goals. That's a part of it, but that's not the heart of it. The heart of ministry is loving people. 
is loving individuals. There's no ego boost in that. And there are many times that you'll serve selflessly behind the scenes where no one will see and no one will know. But you'll be modeling the heart of Christ. Jesus had a concern for the individual in the crowd. So first of all, humility sees the small among the great. Secondly, humility sees the individual in the crowd. And thirdly, a third feature of Christ-like humility that humility feels your pain in my heart. Humility feels your pain in my heart. Verse 32. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. I'm impressed here at what the text does not say. The text does not say, Jesus said, Aha, okay, I'll heal you. It's done. See you later. The text does not say that Jesus addressed these men and said, okay, men, I have two minutes exactly. Then I got to get back on schedule. Got to get to Jerusalem. Accomplish big things. Jesus didn't even say, well, absolutely. I mean, I'm God, your man. Here you go. Done deal. Let's shake hands on it. No, the text says that Jesus stopped. The text says that he was moved with compassion. His very innermost heart felt their pain. He felt their long years of blindness. He felt their suffering. He felt their desperation. He felt how desperate they were for a cure. He felt all the long years of begging and scratching out an existence and lonely existence. He felt all of that in his heart and he sympathized with them. And then the text says, most beautifully, that he touched their eyes. He touched their eyes. You know, Jesus didn't have to touch people. He could have healed from a distance. He could have even healed very close to them, but not touched them. We see here not only Christ's humility in the fact that he healed, but in the manner in which he healed. He showed compassion. He was tender and merciful. He reached out and touched people. He felt people's pain in his heart. Compassion has been called your pain in my heart. And there is something wonderfully humble about compassion. A humble person is also a compassionate person. A prideful person likes to give quick answers, likes to treat people as business commodities. 
The prideful person has no sense of feeling other people's pain in his heart. A humble person, like Jesus, has a soft heart. I've said to men, and I believe another pastor said this, that we need to have tough skins and tender hearts. We need to be strong on the outside, and yet on the inside we need to bleed with people. We need to feel their pain. Jesus was compassionate. I say to you, men and women, many of you who are very successful in the world today, that there is a downside to every success. And I say this as one who has known both success and failure in my life. And the downside to experiencing success is a temptation to lack compassion. If you are smart and educated, it is difficult for you to have compassion upon those who are not smart and not educated. If you are financially successful, it is difficult for you to have compassion upon those who don't have any money. If a healthy life is all that you've known, it is difficult for you to have compassion upon those who are sick. But would you look at Jesus? Jesus never experienced blindness by himself, and yet he was able to have compassion upon those who have been blind all their life. Why? Because he was humble. He was humble. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, this morning, do you have compassion for people who are hurting? Can I say to you this morning that Christian ministry is not a business? We do not treat people as commodities. There's a time to give answers and there's just a time to weep. And can I also say to you, brothers and sisters, that much of Christian ministry is simply understanding other people. And if you don't understand what another person is coming from, you need to do your best to understand. And if you still don't understand, then you need to admit that you don't understand and not pretend that you understand. There's often times when I've sat with brothers and sisters and just told them, honestly, brother and sister, the trial you're going through, I will never understand. I just will never understand how hard it is. I've never been through anything like that before. I just, I'll never understand it. All I can do is just pray for you. But how easy it is in pride just to give quick answers, snap decisions, instead of trying to understand where other people are coming from. That's not Jesus. This wasn't a transaction to Jesus Christ This was Christ's compassionate heart on display. If we are going to be like Jesus Christ, we need to feel other people's hurt in our hearts. And if I add as a practical application, men and women, there's an appropriate place to, to touch people. I don't believe that 
You need to be discerning about this. And I don't believe that men should be touching, brothers should be touching sisters and sisters should be touching brothers. I just don't believe that's wise. But brothers, I think there's a moment when the brother's struggling, if he's hurting, it's okay for you to put your arm on his shoulder and to just weep with him. That's Christ-like. That's what Jesus did when he ministered to people. Humility sees the great among the small. Humility sees the individual among the crowd. Humility feels your pain in my heart. Let me bring this all together with a final bonus point. Now listen closely because if you've missed this, you've missed the entire message. Here's the final thing I want to say to you this morning. Humility sees Jesus Christ as beautiful. Humility sees Jesus Christ as beautiful. This whole time we've been looking at humility from the standpoint of Christ's example. We've been seeing how Christ demonstrated humility and how do we apply that to our lives. As we bring our time to a close, what I want you to do is to look at humility from the standpoint of the two blind men. Was it not humble of these two men to cry out to Jesus? Was it not humble for them to recognize Jesus was their only need and that if they did not have Jesus that they would be hopeless? Was it not humble for them To not only request Jesus' attention, but to cry out. And the Greek word talks about a loud and a harsh cry. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. When the multitude told him to be quiet, to keep crying out until Jesus answered them. Was it not humble of them to recognize their desperate need and their desperate plight? You see, a prideful blind man or a prideful beggar would have watched Jesus walk by and say, I'm good. I mean, I'm a beggar, but I don't need anyone. Jesus, can you help me? And if he didn't answer, just to say, oh, that's fine. I don't really need him that bad. But these blind men demonstrated their humility and the fact that they cried out to Jesus They recognized their need, and they repeatedly cried out until Jesus answered them. Now, as you, we bring our time to close, here's what I want you to do. I want you for a minute to put yourself in the position of these two blind men. You have been blind most likely since birth. You have never seen You don't know what it means to see. Your whole life has passed you by. You have been a beggar. You have been unable to support yourself. You've been living on the road. You have one companion who supports you, and you both cry out for whatever society can give you, whatever scraps that they can give you, and that's been your life. And one day you hear of Jesus, the Messiah, passing by, And you recognize that this is your one chance. This is your one hope to be healed. And so you cry out, Jesus, Jesus, you have to heal me. 
Have mercy on me. And Jesus has compassion upon you. He sees the small among the great. He sees the individual among the crowd. He feels your pain in his heart. He reaches out his hand. He touches your eyes for the first time. Imagine it now. For the first time, you open your eyes and you can see. You've never seen in your life. Until Jesus opened your eyes. And what I want you to picture is as you open your eyes for your very first time, as you come out of blindness into sight, who is the first person that you see? It is Jesus. And what I want to just ask you is as you open your blind eyes and for the very first time you see and the first person you see is Jesus, how beautiful would Jesus have seemed to you as you came out of blindness into sight? How wonderful would he have appeared? How marvelous would his loving countenance appear to your eyes? What kind of thrill and emotion would have entered into your heart? And brothers and sisters, what I want to say to you this morning is that if you are a believer in Christ, you have experienced a similar miracle. You were blind and you were dead and you were destitute in your sins. You were a spiritual beggar without any righteousness of your own. And then one day you recognized your need. You saw the opportunity to come to Christ. You cried out to him, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus saw the small among the great. He saw you as an individual among the crowd. He felt your pain in his heart. He reached out. He touched you and opened your eyes. And for the very first time you saw and the first person you saw was Jesus. And Jesus at that moment appeared more beautiful to you than any treasure here on earth, more beautiful for you to you than houses or money or land, more beautiful to you than any type of academic or educational achievement. He appeared to be the great treasure and you gave up everything, everything to follow him. And that's what these blind men did. You see, they saw Jesus and it says, at the end of the passage, they regained their sight and, don't miss those last two words, they followed him. Why? Because they were duty-bound? Why? Because they had to know, because they saw for the first time and they were captured by his beauty. And so they said, I'll give up everything. And what they had to give up wasn't all that a lot, wasn't all that impressive. A life of begging. They gave up everything, and they followed him. Brothers and sisters, is this not similar to the miracle of sight that has been performed in your life as a believer? And so, what I want to say to you as we respond to this text is, brothers and sisters, let's be humble. Let's be humble because Jesus is humble. Because we want to follow in his footsteps. Let's be humble because Jesus wants us to be humble and not to fight over positions of pride 
and self-exaltation. Let's be humble. Because, brothers and sisters, being humble is the best way and the only way to see and savor the beauty of Jesus Christ. And to see Jesus is to see him as our all-surpassing treasure and to give up everything to follow him. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for this precious look at the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is most beautiful. He is most lovely. We are drawn to him. Our hearts rejoice in his character, his humility. His loneliness. Father, as we see the humility of Jesus, so much of our own pride is exposed. We confess that we are selfish. We are self-promoting. We are prideful. Like the disciples, we desire exalted places in the kingdom. We desire to promote ourselves over other people. Father, our heart's desire is to be like Jesus. And in humbling ourselves before Jesus, to see him as lovely and beautiful. So, Father, would you perform this work in our hearts? We give you all the glory for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.